you stand with me for the reading of God's Word, as we stand, we're preparing ourselves to hear from our Creator and the Redeemer of mankind. We're eager servants ready to hear from Him. Turn your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, page 693 if you need a pew Bible. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels, as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. Let's pray. Father, we see in this passage your son exalted above all, higher than any human person, higher than any created being, even the angels. And Lord, he has done the most marvelous work. We've sung about it. Many of us here have received that gift of forgiveness and transformation of life. And Lord, it's a gift that's offered to everyone here today. I pray that as we hear the preaching of your word, as we hear you speak through this living word, that we would see where we stand in relation to our sins and to you as our Savior. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We are continuing in our worship series that we've been in for the last couple of weeks, a series called Final Questions, where we are examining a biblical view of life and death life after death. And uh, you know, everyone thinks about life and death and what happens after you die at some point in their life. Uh, sometimes that's spurred on when you attend a funeral. Sometimes that's spurred on when you read about a, uh, a death or even a murder or whatever the case may be, especially if it hits close to home. In fact, even children at times think about life and death. In fact, nine, some nine-year-old kids were asked what they thought about death and dying, and here are some of their answers. Jimmy said, when you die, they bury you in the ground and your soul goes to heaven. But your bo body can't go to heaven because it's too crowded up there already. Mary said, only the good people go to heaven. The other people go where it's hot all the time, like in Florida. Johnny said, maybe I'll die someday, but I hope I don't die on my birthday because it's no fun to celebrate your birthday if you're dead. And Marcia said, when you die, you don't have to do homework in heaven unless your teacher is there too. <laughs> is that going to be true, Zach? Are you going to make your students do homework in heaven? So I don't know. But so far we've answered two questions in this series. The first question we looked at, is there life after death? And yes, Jesus made it clear that there is life after death. In fact, Jesus himself tells us in John chapter 5, verse 24, 
Verily, truly, I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but has crossed from death to life. And then this last Sunday, we answered the question, is reincarnation true? No, reincarnation is a false theory according to God's word. And yet, we find that Jesus does tell us in the Gospel of John that we can be, quote, born again. Not physically born again, over and over and over again, but rather spiritually born again from above through God's Spirit. This morning, I want to answer another question. And that is, what about the issue of purgatory? It's assumed sometimes that Catholics believe in purgatory and Protestants or Christians don't. But there is a sense in which Christians do believe in purgatory, but not in the same way that Catholics do. Perhaps you've wondered to yourself, what happens to Christians when they die? Perhaps you've even asked yourself, do they go straight to heaven, or do they go to this so-called place, purgatory? And if purgatory, what happens there? How long are you there, and how do you get out? These are relevant questions. They're practical questions. And in fact, when Pope John Paul II died in 2005, many people said he was a lucky man. Because as a, quote, saint, he got to bypass purgatory and go straight to heaven. And if that's true, then what does that mean for the rest of us? Do we get to bypass purgatory and go straight to heaven? Or is that just a status that is only reserved for so-called saints like the Pope. Well, I invite you to join me this morning as we look at the question of purgatory. We want to then discover the answer from God's Word, and then we want to make an application for our lives. And so notice the question, what about purgatory? What about this question here, this issue, this so-called place of purgatory? Well, first of all, we should note that the Catholic writers are not totally agreed on this topic of purgatory. In fact, what the Council of Trent says about purgatory is not exactly what Pope John Paul II said in 1999. There isn't a direct contradiction, but rather there is a difference in tone and emphasis. The historical emphasis of the Catholic Church has been that purgatory is this dreadful place of pain, of a painful, long-lasting punishment with fire. The, reference, uh, the recent references by the Pope imply, though, that purgatory is not a place, but rather a condition of life. And part of the problem from these uh, contradiction stems from the fact that purgatory is not explicitly taught here in the Word of God. And many Catholic theologians in the past would even agree with that. At most, they can cite a few biblical passages that might be said to infer the existence of purgatory. But the truth is that the Bible doesn't teach the Catholic doctrine of purgatory. It owes more to religious tradition than to anything that is found in God's Word. In fact, belief in purgatory didn't become a formal church doctrine until the 16th century. And so with this in mind, let me just give you a, an overview, a summary, if you will, of what Catholicism teaches about life after death. When you die, your soul goes to one of three places. 
First, if you die with unforgiven mortal sin, you go directly to hell. In fact, the most obvious example of unforgiven mortal sin would be a direct or deliberate rejection of Jesus Christ as your Savior. And, and on this front, I do agree with Catholicism that to reject Christ as your Lord and Savior means we spend eternity in hell. We're going to talk about this very issue next Sunday. Is hell really real? Is hell necessary? How does hell, is it compatible with the love of God, which is, you know, all the rage now today? And so we'll look at that next Sunday. Second, uh, the overview of Catholicism teaches that if you die in a state of perfect holiness, you go directly into the presence of God in heaven. But what does perfect holiness mean? Simply means to be in such a state that there's no sin in your life that stands between you and the Lord. And so obviously Roman Catholics believe that there are very, very, very few people who meet this standard of holiness. Which brings us to the third. If you die as a believer in Christ, but in a state that is less than perfect, then you go to a place that they believe in called purgatory. When your soul is purified, it's there when your soul is purified until you are ready then to enter into God's presence in heaven. And this includes most believers since virtually no one, even in Catholic thinking, achieves perfect holiness in this lifetime. So what exactly is purgatory then? Well, here's the Catholic teaching regarding purgatory, and this is in your notes if you want to follow along. Here's the definition of the very word purgatory. It, it means to make clean. It means to purify. That's the meaning of the word. And then you come to their belief, and this is the belief, that there exists a place after death where some of the sins of people are, quote, purged through suffering and even the sacrifices of the living. Purgatory is then believed by Catholics to be a, a location or a state where the souls of most individuals go at the time of death. And it has traditionally been viewed as a place of torment. In fact, the older Catholic writers often stressed the terrible conditions in purgatory, which in the end sounded a lot like the flames of hell. Purgatory was seen as a place of punishment where you paid for the, your remaining sins before entering heaven, which brings us to the whole purpose of pur purgatory. Why, why Catholics teach in this doctrine here, and that is to attain purification. And the reason we need to attain purification, according to this view, is to achieve the holiness that is necessary to enter the joy of heaven. According to Catholicism, purgatory is the place of final purification for those who have died in God's grace and friendship, but they're not yet completely purified at the moment of death. And so heaven is this place for only those who have been perfectly purified, where purgatory then provides the place of purification between our life here on earth and life in heaven, for the faithful who have died in God's grace and friendship. And so then, after a period of time, corresponding to the suffering that is necessary for the sins that you've committed, this person then is set free and you enter into heaven. Now, purgatory has often been called, as you might understand, the divine waiting room for heaven. 
In fact, a revised and updated edition of the Catholic Encyclopedia explains, and I quote, the souls of those who have died in the state of grace suffer for a time of purging that prepares them to enter heaven. It is an intermediate state in which the departed souls can atone for unforgiven sins before receiving their final reward. The website kinsmen.com describes purgatory like this. Purgatory is not hell minus a few torments in degrees Fahrenheit. It's not heaven, though, minus joy. It's not a third final destination of souls. Purgatory is simply the place where already saved souls are cleansed of the temporal effects of sin before they are allowed to see the holy face of Almighty God. All of this brings us to a rather obvious question, and that is, well, how long do people wait in purgatory? And the answer is, not even Catholics, no. No one knows. The length and time and how much suffering one must endure depends in large part on the kind of person a person lived, kind of life, excuse me, a person lived here on this earth in the state of their soul when they died. And since only God can make those judgments, purgatory may be as short as a few hours or it may last for hundreds or even thousands of years. The greater point is that according to Catholic teaching, Almost all believers go to purgatory, and almost no one goes directly to heaven. This has led Roman Catholics, therefore, to develop a doctrine which teaches that a person's time in purgatory may be shortened and his pains alleviated by the faithful prayers and good works of those who are still alive. The Council of Trent in 1545 states, We constantly hold that purgatory exists and that the souls of the faithful there detained are helped by the prayers of the faithful. In fact, you'll find an insert in your bulletin there. Uh, it's called, Should We Pray for the Dead? I won't take time to read it, but I encourage you to take it home and read it. It answers that question there. Pope John Paul II made this statement in 1999. Before we enter into God's kingdom, every trace of sin within us must be eliminated. Every imperfection in our soul must be corrected. This is exactly what takes place in purgatory. And then he urged all Catholics to pray and to do good works on behalf of those who are still in purgatory so that the latter will be released earlier than they would otherwise be. You can go to the website M-T-E-P. Uh, it actually is an acronym for the mission to empty purgatory. M-T-E-P. It is made up of people dedicated to intercessory prayer for the holy souls in purgatory. MTEP's primary objective is to say on prayer of St. Gertrude, the great, uh, the great for every thousand souls who have ever lived, thereby ensuring that purgatory is empty. It's their mission to empty out purgatory of the souls that are in there. Now, as you can imagine, the vision of loved ones suffering in purgatory has motivated many, many Catholics to do whatever it took to free those suffering souls so, so they could be released into the presence of God in heaven. Thus, there is this need now for indulgences. 
You say, what's an indulgence? Some of you are familiar with that if you come from a Catholic background. Let me give you the definition of an indulgence. It is the remission or limited release from the temporal punishments one must suffer in this life or in purgatory for the sins a person has committed. An example of that would be acts as, such as reciting a prayer, saying the rosary, lighting candles, attending mass, and frequent confession can all reduce one's time in purgatory. In fact, what's interesting is in the early 1500s, a German monk uh, began selling indulgences. Uh, he claimed that a soul is released from purgatory and carried into heaven as soon as the money tinkles in the box. His view is summarized in this well-known couplet. As soon as the gold in the bucket rings, the recused soul to heaven springs. Now, when you stand back from this idea, this worldview, or at least this Catholic view of purgatory, the whole implication of it is this. It leads you to this implication. And you find this in your notes coming up on the screen. Is that most people there therefore, are not quite ready for heaven when they die. That's the implication. As believers in Christ, we're not ready to enter into heaven because heaven is holy and we're not holy enough. We're not good enough. We're not ready for it. Now, on a, on a strictly, purely human level, I can somewhat understand this line of reasoning. I mean, from a human perspective, how many Genuine saints do you know who are, quote, ready for heaven? Look around this room, <laughs> right? I mean, even in my own family, I'm like, who in our family is ready to enter into heaven? I mean, when I look at Jack and Tyler and my wife, well, my wife may be ready. When she looks at me, not so much, you know? And so you understand that. It seems like we all need to be fixed up, kind of, before we are ready to go to heaven, especially when we consider all our many faults, all our hidden sins, and all our bad habits, and it appears that not many of us are, quote, ready to enter in the holiness of heaven. It's this observation, then, that leads Catholics to conclude that there has to be, there must be some place where those earthly faults of ours are, quote, purged before we can pass through the gates of heaven. But the problem is, at this point, a very familiar one. It's even a problem that we, even as Christians, Christ followers, even deal with every day in our own lives. And that is we don't fully understand, we don't even fully embrace and grasp the grace of God. This is not surprising since no doctrine is probably more difficult to embrace then the doctrine that everything God does for us comes freely from his grace. Deep in our hearts, we like to think that, yes, we are sinners. We intuitively know that, even though we may not admit that. But when we get down to it, we also think at the same time, but I'm really not quite that bad. I'm definitely not as bad as the person sitting next to me. Or to borrow the words of St. Aslam of Canterbury, you have not yet considered how great your sin is. And this is true of all of us. We are worse than we think we are, and yet God's grace is far greater than we can even begin to imagine. And it's only by God's grace that any of us are made, quote, ready for heaven when we die. 
So yes, I do think Catholics are right on one level in saying that something must be done to us before we can enter heaven. That is true. Why? Because we are sinners by birth and by choice. And if something doesn't change, if something doesn't happen to us, we cannot enter heaven. But that something, get this, was done 2,000 years ago and therefore doesn't need to be repeated or added to, added to in the future. We're going to look at what that something was. Jesus Christ is the answer to the purgatory question because, notice number two, the answer to the question is Christ purged our sins on the cross. Christ purged our sins on the cross. Now, this brings us to the essential question regarding purgatory. And the question, we can summarize it this way. Notice it in your notes coming up on the screen. Does the death of Jesus Christ purify us from our sins so that when we die, we go directly to heaven, or must we be further purified in purgatory? That is the question. And God provides the answer. God's word gives us the answer to this very question. Pastor Chris read from Hebrews chapter 1. And specifically, verse 3 is the primary text, if you can only go to one verse, that answers this question. Notice what it says again, reading it from the New King James Version. It says, when he, speaking about Jesus Christ, had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The NIV translation says it this way, after he, that is Jesus, had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So let me give you three answers from God's word to this very question about purgatory. First of all, Christ purged our sins. How did he do that? By his work of salvation on the cross. Hebrews 1.3 is the closest thing to purgatory in the Bible, and it doesn't happen after we die. Praise the Lord, right? It happened 2,000 years ago when Christ died on the cross. Notice, it's not something that I suffer. It's not something that you suffer. It is something that Jesus Christ suffered for us, for me, for you. Christ purged us from our sins. I was dirty with sin. And Jesus is the one who took my dirty sin upon himself so that I might be made clean, righteous, and holy. Now, please understand that as a child of God, I am never going to face purgatory, and the reason is this, because Jesus has already purged me from my sins. He's already cleansed me. And so no purgatory, or I should say my purgatory, was 2,000 years ago on the cross when Jesus died in my place. To paraphrase the old hymn, what can purge away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. So Christ purged our sins by his work of salvation on the cross. Number two, Christ's purging of our sins on the cross. Get this, this is important, and this goes to the issue here again, to the heart of it. His purging of our sins on the cross is sufficient and complete 
for all people for all times. Notice the Hebrews 1.3 says, when he had by himself purged our sins. Now that word when can also be translated after, such as in the NIV, and it literally means having made, referring to a complete and sufficient act in the past. The Vatican II documents state, and I quote, the doctrine of purgatory clearly demonstrates that even while the guilt of sin had been taken away, punishment for it or the consequences of it may remain to be expiated or cleansed. In fact, in purgatory, the souls of those who have died in the charity of God are in truly repentant, but who had not made satisfaction with adequate penance for their sins and omissions are cleansed after death with punishments designed to purge away their debt. But is that what the Bible teaches? Is that what God's Word shows us here? You see, when Christ died on the cross, folks, get this, understand this, Jesus not only made it possible for our guilt of sin to be taken away, but He took care of the punishment and the consequences of our sin as well. Notice what it says. You go over to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. It's in your notes, or you can actually turn there, and look what it says. Hebrews 10, reading verses 11 through 14. It says, And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. And so the writer of Hebrews is taking us back to the Old Testament system, where you had the, the priesthood and, and the sacrificial system in the Old Testament that daily the priests had to offer sacrifices for the sins of God's people, the Israelites. And it was never permanent. It had to be repeated over and over again. And all of that in the Old Testament was to show us our need for Jesus Christ. And it's pointing us forward to the cross. And now we're on this side of the cross, and so we look back to the cross of what Jesus did once and for all. The writer goes on now in verse 12, but when Christ had suffered for all time a single sacrifice for sins. Now what, what's he referring to there? His work on the cross. And what happened? What does the writer tell us that Jesus did after that work on the cross, after that single sacrifice for sins? It says, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemy should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified or those who are being set apart. And so understand this, notice this, the purging of our sins, it took place on the cross once and for all. And therefore, no other purging is necessary. In fact, it's not even possible. Why? Because Christ's purging is sufficient and complete. Question, though, how do we know this? How do we know that Christ's work for us on the cross is sufficient and complete once and for all? Well, the Bible tells us. In fact, right here in these passages, Hebrews 1, Hebrews 10, and even in other places, the Bible tells us that after Jesus' work on the cross, he what? He sat down at the right hand of the Father, where? In heaven. Now, 
why would Jesus sit down? Well, let me tell you why. Let me ask you this. After you get through mowing your backyard and your front yard, what do you do? Who doesn't go inside, grab an iced tea or a Diet Coke, and go out to your deck chair, and you what? You sit down. And if you sit on your deck, you overlook your yard, and you what? You're like, whoa, that looks good. I did a good job. The work is complete. The only downside, it's not complete forever, is it? Because three days later, I'm having to do the same thing over again. But not Jesus. His work is sufficient and complete for all time. And so he sat down because his work is finished. That's what Jesus meant when he was on the cross and he cried out on the cross in John 19, 30, it is what? Finished. Jesus did what he came to do. And nothing, get this, nothing can be added to his work on the cross. There is no room then for our self-cleansing. There's no room for penance. There's no room for human merit of any kind to add to what Jesus has already done for us. God is already satisfied with the work of his son. Amen. Woohoo! That means nothing can ever be added to the merit of his shed blood. In fact, because God is satisfied with Christ's work on the cross once and for all, this leads us to a third answer here. Notice it. God then declares all who trust in Christ's work on the cross as righteous. And he accepts them immediately into his presence in heaven after death. Now, this brings us to a theological word in the Bible. It's a word that's called justification. And this is what justification by faith means. Now, you go to the book of Romans, and we won't take time, but I will read for you a few verses here. But Romans, uh, where the Apostle Paul talks a lot about this concept, this idea of justification by faith. In, in particular, he begins to, to lay out that argument for it in Romans chapter 3, because there, that's where he deals, really, one through three, how of our sinfulness of humanity, our sinfulness of mankind that we all have. And then he begins to lay out in verses chapters 4 and 5 what Jesus Christ has done for us. All right? Listen to the words here in Romans 5, verses 1 through 2. It says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, that is awesome through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And then Paul tells us later on, verses 8 and 9, how this came about. He says, but God demonstrates his own love toward us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. You drop down to verse 18 in the same chapter, and it says, Therefore, it's through one man's offense. And that man's offense is taking us back to Adam and Eve, Adam's sin. Judgment came to all men, all the world, resulting in condemnation. Even so, through one man's righteous act, and that one man's righteous act is referring to who? Jesus Christ, his work on the cross. The free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. The disciples, Peter and John, 
also emphasize this truth. You go to 1 Peter 3, verse 18, and there Peter writes, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. There's no intermediate state. There's no waiting room, if you will. 1 John 1, 7 says, The blood of Jesus, His Son, purifies us from all sin. Romans 8, 1 says, and it's kind of the culmination of it all. Therefore, since what Jesus did on the cross for us once and for all, that his work satisfied the wrath of God, therefore, because of that, therefore, because when we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What are all these verses saying? Well, these verses are saying that when you trust in Christ's work on the cross, God declares you perfectly righteous. You are justified in his eyes, and there is nothing more you can do because Christ has already done it all. That is the most glorious thing in the whole world. And because you've been clothed in Christ's righteousness, get this, that means God also accepts you now. Do you realize that? It doesn't matter what your past is, how bad you are been in the past, in your sins and whatever. Man, in Christ, you are accepted by God the Father. Now. You are his son, you are his daughter, he is your father. And he embraces you warts and all. He not only accepts you now, but he accepts you immediately into his presence in heaven after you die. In fact, the Apostle Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5, 6 through 8, that to be absent from this old body of ours, he calls it a tent, to be absent from this body, and what's absent? He's talking about our soul. That is the, the, the real us. To be absent from this body is to be present with the Lord. And when does that happen? At death. Glorious. So God's answer to purgatory is that there is no need for purgatory after we die since Christ purged our sins on the cross once and for all. So, in that sense, I do believe in purgatory. Not the one after we die, but the one that took place on the cross 2,000 years ago. So what does all this mean for us? What's the application of all this? Well, number three, it brings us to it. Salvation depends on Christ alone. Salvation depends on Christ alone. In the end, when you strip it all away, all right, when this issue of purgatory, and when you strip it all down, in the end, purgatory is really about the sufficiency of Christ's death on the cross. Either Christ's death is enough, or it isn't. And if it is, nothing else is needed. But if it isn't, then you've got to ask the question, then why did Jesus die at all? If sin has been paid for by Christ, do you realize that to try to pay for it again is unnecessary? In fact, it is an insult to God. So the more important question for us is this. 
Who then are you depending on for your salvation? Who are you depending on to, if I can use this word, to purge your sins in order to achieve the righteousness that is necessary to enter in the joy of heaven? Are you depending on your works? What you are seeking to try to do in this lifetime? Or are you depending on Christ's work on the cross, but now you're also adding to that, plus your works. And so you come to the cross, and you, you cry out, and you confess, I believe in Jesus Christ, I believe what he did on the cross for me, but I don't think it's enough. I now need to do something else to add to that. I need to try to live, live a good enough life. I need to do whatever to kind of ensure that I go to heaven. Christ's work plus now my works. That's where a lot of people live in our world. Right there. And if I could be so blunt as to say, that is a false gospel. That, is, that belief is incompatible with the gospel that is revealed in God's word. And if we are believing in anything that we can do to add to it, we are going to come up short. It is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. Which brings us to the only other option that ensures your soul in heaven. And that is to believe in Christ's work alone. That is adding nothing else to it. Why must Christ alone purge our sins? Because only Christ could do it. Only Christ could satisfy God's justice and wrath. Only Christ could die in our place on the cross. Only Christ could pay for the price of our sins. Only Christ could give us his perfect righteousness. And so if you are here this morning and you are depending on Jesus Christ's work on the cross, then if you are already cleansed, already purified, already forgiven, already justified, if all those things are true about you, guess what? Purgatory isn't necessary. Purgatory creates this waiting room for believers when God opens the door of heaven when we die and he says, come on in, I've been preparing a place for you. Purgatory, in effect, robs believers of their assurance of heaven. It keeps them guessing. It gives them no hope in the moment of death. That's why people who believe in this so-called purgatory can never be totally sure what will happen when they die. Here's the bottom line question. Is purgatory necessary to enter heaven? And I hope all of you, after this message here, you walk out of here and you understand the answer is no, and why it is no, based on the word of God. We could summarize it this way. There's no need for purgatory after we die, because the purgatory we need happened 2,000 years ago when Jesus purged our sins on the cross once and for all. Folks, do you realize Jesus suffered the punishment we should have suffered? Jesus paid our sin debt fully and completely. And because God is completely satisfied with what Jesus did on the cross, we don't need to make any further atonement for our sins, either now in this lifetime or in the future when we die. 
You know what our only need is as sinners, by birth and by choice? Our only need, our only hope is Jesus Christ. What he has done on the cross in his resurrection. It's called the gospel. It's the person and work of Jesus. It's what God has provided for us in the gospel. Are you trusting in Christ's work of salvation on the cross that he paid your sin debt once and for all? That is the most important question you can't grapple with this morning. Jesus has already done everything necessary. There's nothing more to do for us, for sinners like us, to go to heaven. But the opportunity, understand, oh please understand, the opportunity to respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ. The opportunity to respond to Jesus ends when our life here on this earth is over. That heightens the urgency here in two ways. It heightens the urgency for those of us here who have yet to respond, to respond, to not delay. There's coming a day when our lives will be over and where the opportunity will cease. Listen, we hear stories all the time where a life is taken, a life is taken. You, I mean, you get on the internet and you just read the Kansas City Star here in, in, in the, just in the Kansas City area. Somebody was murdered. Somebody was killed in a car crash. Somebody's life is taken. It doesn't matter if you're 87 or if you're 7 or if you're 15. You never know when your life is going to be taken. It could happen on the way home here this morning. And so the urgency is heightened here. Have you responded? Don't delay. Don't wait. To delay is dangerous because no one knows how long they will live. But the urgency is also heightened for those of us here who are Christ followers who have responded to the gospel to do what? To share this hope. To share the good news of Jesus Christ with our neighbors, our co-workers, our family, our friends. That is also the urgency because their life could also be taken. Their time on this earth is short. And you add to the fact we never know when Jesus could return, right? Man, I hope he returns today. But if he doesn't, that's because God is being long-suffering. He's being patient. He's given opportunity for more people to come to know him, and which means he's given more opportunity for us to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with those people. You ever wonder, why has God left me here on this earth? I'd rather go to heaven today. Life would be so much better and easier if he'd just take me to heaven, right? Oh, I'd maybe miss my loved ones. No, you wouldn't. You're in heaven. They'd maybe miss you. God, listen, God's left us here on earth for one reason. That's so that we can grab as many people with us and take them with us. Not in our own power, but by sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ with them. And so the urgency is heightened here. And so walk out, leave this morning with that tension in your heart, if you will. Jesus Christ is the answer. He's all you need. Put your life in his work on the cross. Trust him as your Lord and Savior, and then share it. Don't keep it to yourself. Let's pray. With your heads bowed,
Man, perhaps you're here and, and you're like, man, I need to respond. I don't, I don't have this assurance that when I die, I'm going to go to heaven. Man, you can, you can know that. You can have that assurance. You can respond right now. We're going to have a moment where we take a few minutes where we respond. We pray to the Lord right where we're seated if need be. And you can pray a simple prayer such as this. Lord Jesus, I want to live forever with you in heaven. I believe you are the Son of God. I believe you died on the cross for my sins and you rose from the dead. I believe there's no other way to experience forgiveness of my sins and eternal life in heaven than through you. And so with all my heart, I trust you alone as my Lord and Savior. Forgive me and save me. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Now you don't have to pray those exact words, but you can just put it in your own words and cry out with your heart of repentance of your sin and confession of that and that you want to be saved through Jesus' work on the cross. Would you pray to him? For those of us who are already Christ followers, man, bring that person you know who needs the gospel. Bring them to the throne of grace. Ask God to work on them. Ask God to open their heart and their eyes and to use you to share the hope of Jesus as the praise team sings.